This month's podcasts are sponsored by Aubergine Legal. Do you sometimes worry that your business isn't meeting all its legal compliance requirements and wonder if you're ticking all the legal boxes? Are you losing sleep worrying about a piece of legislation that you may or may not be complying with? Perhaps you need some help with your client contracts or your data protection compliance. Or maybe you're worried that your website doesn't have the right documents or legal notices in the right place. Perhaps you have a brand that you want to protect with a trademark. How about if you could outsource it all and eliminate all of your worries? If so, then get in touch with Aubergine Legal, a friendly commercial legal consultancy offering practical and clear commercial legal advice without the overwhelming legal jargon, taking the worry away and helping you to protect your business and minimise your risks. Aubergine offers a free 30-minute consultation if you have any questions or want to find out if they can help. And you can access this link and book your free 30-minute call via the link in the show notes. Welcome to the Bring Your Product Ideas to Life podcast. Practical advice and inspiration to help you create and sell your own physical products. Here's your host, Vicky Weinberg. Today on the podcast, I'm delighted to speak to Marika Syed from Snackzilla. Born out of her mum's frustration to find healthy, filling snacks for her two boys, Snackzilla soft-baked oat cookies are made especially for kids, supporting them to live healthier lives without compromising on fun or taste. I was really excited to speak to Marika. She's only the second guest I've had on who sells a food product, and in the short few years that she's been running her business, she's seen a massive success being stocked in both Cardo and in Sainsbury's. Um, I learned so much about the food industry um, and retail during this conversation. Um, I had lots that surprised me and I think perhaps you will you know you'll be surprised too um, and I really hope as always that you enjoy this conversation. So hi Marie thank you so much for being here. Thank you Vicky for having me. Oh you're welcome I'm really excited to talk to you. So can we start by you please give an introduction to yourself your business and what you sell. Yes, so I'm Marika and I am the founder of Snackzilla, which is a brand new kids healthy snack brand aimed at kind of five to 11 year olds, so primary school age. And we launched last year with a range of soft baked oat cookies that are kind of ideal for lunch boxes and after school snacking. Amazing, thank you. And so let's start with what inspired you to start Snackzilla and how have you managed to make what could be a relatively unhealthy snack, so cookies, how have you managed to make them healthy? So I apologise, that is two questions in one. <laughs> so I'm a mum of two boys who are 11 and 8 years old and about four years ago I started getting really frustrated at the lack of kind of healthier options to put in their lunchbox and to bring as after school snacks. And they had grown out of the baby and toddler products that, you know, they loved and I loved, like organics and plum baby and kiddie-licious products. They kind of weren't big enough. They weren't filling enough. The branding was too babyish for them. And they really wanted junk food products. They wanted me to take, you know, Oreos and they wanted Maryland cookies. They wanted adult products to eat kind of as a snack. And I thought there must be something in the middle that's kind of aimed and targeted at kids nutritionally and size-wise and branding-wise, but is healthier than the kind of adult products that they crave. And there really wasn't anything on the market. So it was a kind of massive, I saw it as a massive opportunity to create a brand and a product 
that was kind of specifically aimed at primary school aged kids. Um, so that was the real inspiration behind it. And then to start the process going, I decided uh, to go down the biscuit route, cookies, because I thought, who doesn't love a biscuit? Um, and there was already so many kind of snack bars on the market. Um, and there wasn't that many healthier biscuits. So I took my great grandmother's um, oat cookie recipe and I started working uh, with a food developer who helped me adapt the recipe to try and make it healthier. So that's kind of the, the start of the journey. That's amazing. Thank you. Um, and I'm completely with you. My kids now are six and nine and we're definitely, it's definitely getting harder snack wise um, because as you say, once they move out for those baby snacks, it is, there's nothing, you're right, there's absolutely nothing apart from your product between the baby product and the adult things, which you don't necessarily want them to have because apart from anything else, portion sizes and yeah, and even an ad- healthy-ish adult snack is still like not the right proportions for a child. So yeah, there's de- I can definitely see the, the need. And um, so what happened, so after you had the inspiration and you started adapting the recipe, um, what happened from there? So um, about, about at around about the same time that I started this, the government, the UK government was starting to get even more concerned about childhood obesity rates in this country, because now we're in a situation that one in three kids is leaving primary school overweight or obese. And they're trying to do as much as they can to obviously reverse that. And the talk about four years ago was about something similar to the sugar tax for soft drinks, but to make that applicable to other uh, categories of food. And so there was kind of murmurings on the horizon that they were going to start regulating um, food for children a bit more heavily in terms of uh, restricting how it's promoted, how it's advertised, uh, to try and reduce the amount that is sold to parents and subsequently given to kids. So they st- there was this um, kind of equation that um, the Department for Health had written, which is called the Nutritional Profile Model. And I decided to use that as a kind of a benchmark. Um, and that they used that with Ofcom to decide what products can be advertised to kids. So I thought, right, I do want my product to be advertised to kids. So it needs to be healthy. It needs to meet these benchmarks. And that took about two to three years to get the product to meet those that criteria because you're taking a product that is inherently unhealthy. It's a combination of carbohydrates, you know, flour, usually butter and sugar. And that combo of those ingredients is what makes it a biscuit. It makes it melt in the mouth. It makes it bake well. It makes it taste nice. And as soon as you start taking the sugar out and the fat out and the carbs out, you no longer have a biscuit. And so it was a real kind of scientific endeavor um, for about three years to to get that perfect recipe that still acted like a biscuit, tasted like a biscuit, had that mouth feel when you put it in your mouth of a biscuit, still had enough sweetness that kids would see it as a sweet treat, um, but it couldn't have too much sugar, fat or salt because we wanted it to meet these new guidelines that are coming into place later this year now. So yeah, it took so much longer than I ever expected to get the product ready. 
And then in the meantime, whilst working on the product, it was also trying to create a brand. Thank you. And you mentioned you worked with somebody to help you with developing the recipe. Yes. So there are loads of amazing food developers out there who work with small startups, but also they work with massive corporate brands to help refine a recipe to make it sweeter, saltier, tastier, healthier, um, cheaper. And so you can work with, with a company and they will help you. Um, they, their background is usually quite technical, but also nu- nutritionists, and they can help you adapt and create a recipe according to your, your brief of what you need. So yeah, I worked with um, some great people over the last few years, all kind of different expertise, a lot of people with expertise in biscuits, um, to really help me kind of to get the perfect recipe at the end of it. Thank you for explaining all of that because I really think that people wouldn't necessarily know how long it can take to refine a recipe Um, because obviously it's not just, as you say, it's not just the taste, but it's the texture and the nutritional values. Um, I certainly wouldn't have even thought about all of the things you have to consider. So thank you for being so honest about that because I think that would be quite eye-opening for people to realise just how long it takes to develop a new product. Yeah, I mean, I never realised it starting out, I thought it would take, six months maybe a year max and I think it's a process that actually never stops for a lot of food brands you're constantly trying to tweak it there could be an ingredient that you use that suddenly shoots up in price and therefore it's no longer viable for you to use that and you have to swap something out it could be that there's new legislation that comes in that means you can no longer use you know you need to get your fat down or your calories down or it could be yeah, a pricing issue for a lot of companies. They're constantly changing the recipe. And as a consumer, you would never realize because sometimes they advertise you know, new improved recipe in the pack. But for the most part, it's a tiny tweak. They don't want the consumer to actually realize. They, you, know, you wouldn't know there's a difference in the taste. But companies, you keep having to, to refine reformulate and and improve as you go along so I've realized that it's a constant journey of improvement and I don't think it will ever stop really that's so interesting I had absolutely no idea that that would be the case that's so interesting because you assume that companies um, especially the bigger brands you, you assume they sort of get their recipe down and then they have a big factory and just churn them out by the day and that's sort of it so that's really interesting to know yeah, it's it's yes, I know I didn't realise at all, but yeah, it, it keeps you on your toes. <laughs> it makes it never dull in the kind of food world. Yeah, yeah, that's actually really surprised me. But yeah, thank you for sharing that. And so once you've got your recipe sort of ready to launch, let's say, let's let's go back to then, because I know like as you say, you're probably consistently tweaking your recipe. But once you've got it ready to launch and you've got your branding so what happens then how do you get from that to having a product available to sell um yeah it's a it's again a hard slog and that is contacting uh, buyers at shops and supermarkets and pitching your product to them and you know selling your product uh, sending them presentations going for meetings and selling why your product is unique what makes it different to the products that they already stock and something that I never realized before going into the food industry was you know when we put a new product on the shelf that means something else is coming off because the shelves are not 
constantly growing. Shops aren't constantly growing in, in their size. So for you to come in on that shelf, something needs to leave. So your argument is about why your product is better than X product, why you need to take their place. So that's really fascinating. You really need to think about what, not just that you're filling a gap in the market, but you're, you need to replace something that's, that's already there and it's already selling well. And it's probably already owned by a massive company that's pumping a lot of money into it. And how is your you know, startup product going to sell better than theirs? Because supermarkets are all about you know, shifting stocks, shifting products. They don't want products sitting in shelves. They need it to be constantly, daily emptying shelves. Um, so that was really fascinating. So it, it is a massive sales exercise. So it was contacting supermarkets that I wanted the product to be in. And that's, again, a, a long process. We, uh, my first one I pitched to was Ocado because I thought that's absolutely prime target for us in terms of our shopper profile and our customer profile. And it aligned to theirs. And yeah, they said yes. And then it's been nearly three years since they said yes. And we only launched with them two weeks ago. That's, oh, wow. That's how long it takes. Um, or can take. I know for some people they can get on really quickly, but for us, um, you know, COVID didn't help. But yeah, it's working with supermarkets is is a long is a long game. So but, we're yeah. now talking to some of the big supermarkets, um, but it could be years before the product actually goes into them. I saw you were in Sainsbury's. I, I saw that on your Instagram. Yeah, so we were on, Sainsbury's have this great scheme where they test out um, future small brands. And so we were on Sainsbury's on trial and that finished at Christmas. So you got, we got 13 weeks on shelf in 70 different stores across the UK. And then that kind of gives you a taster of what it's like to sell into the big supermarkets and a little trial and then hopefully this year we get the opportunity to um, get a permanent position but we find out in the summertime hopefully. Oh, so it really is a long process to come off the shelves in December and then wait you know wait. six months to find out. Yeah. I had no idea that because you would kind of assume that you go in you pitch they say yes and you know a couple of weeks later you send your stock in so that's fascinating and coming back to sort of where you fit and you're mentioning that for you your products go on the shelf something else has to leave obviously don't share with us the who and what but do you actually have to be that specific do you actually have to say our product is better than x product yes yeah wow okay so you really have to know the market then yeah you have to know the buy the, the market you have to know really how many they are selling every week and you need to be confident that you're going to be able to sell more than that um so yeah you do need to know the specifics of, of where you're fitting into that category to convince that buyer to take a chance on you because it's a massive chance they're taking on you especially if you're a small business because you don't have that you might not necessarily have a team around you that expertise you might not have the financial backing um and they need to ensure that if they pick a product to go on their shelves, that it's going to be successful. And it's not going to, you know, the company's not going to go bust in, in three months' time. You know, they need to have faith that your product isn't just a tasty product. Uh, there's this kind of all the, the, the process and the system behind it is there to support kind of a big listing. 
So that's what has taken so long for me is, is kind of creating those foundations, getting all that right so that we're ready to kind of start growing them. Oh, that's really ruthless, isn't it? To sort of have to sort of call out, okay, I think you should get rid of this one and stock ours. And I'm not that I'm not knocking that by the way, but I'm saying it. I didn't realise how it would be, and it's made me. It's actually made me sort of question whether this happens in other industries as well. And I'm assuming it does because most stores, whether they store closed or whatever, only have a certain number of shelves and spaces. So I had no idea that. It would, that it would be like that and everyone always competing for, for yeah. those spaces. Yeah, it is a massive competition. And you just want it to be a fair competition. Yeah. And it's not, at the moment, it's not that fair because you've got massive conglomerates owning a lot of food brands. Um, you know, the big, big guys, Unilever's and the Marses and Kraft of this world, um, Nestle, etc. They own a lot of food brands. Um, and so it's very hard for a small business to kind of wrestle and get a place on those shelves in between them. Yeah, I can imagine. And I suppose as well, there's also in the eyes of the supermarkets, there's also probably a challenge around production and well, can you actually produce enough packets of biscuits to stock 70 stores for, for, as an example and to keep them replenished um which leads me on to how i'm assuming you've had to find a manufacturer for your biscuits um how did you go about d- doing that because again i'm sure that's also not an easy product um not an easy process i'm sure that's not a case of just going on google and searching for food manufacturing plants how do you go about that so the way i first of all i went with kind of some recommendations people I knew and so I went to I went down that route but I also went down um so all food manufacturers are actually listed if they are part of an accredited scheme so there is a website which lists all and you can filter it so I could find all bakeries in the UK um that were part of a kind of accredited supermarket approved scheme and then it was a matter of just picking up the phone and calling them all um a lot of them don't want to speak to you because they are busy they don't have space on their production line they are manufacturing 24 hours a day and why would they um, take a risk on you as a small business startup so a lot of them are just you know they want massive orders to start off with which you just can't you know, pay for you know millions of biscuits um, so you need to find one that is willing to take a risk on you so yeah, I just spoke to loads of bakeries, travelled all over the UK, visited them all, and found the one that it was a rela- it's creating a relationship. They, you have to pitch to them to say why they should take a chance on you, why they should start manufacturing your product, and yeah, sell yourself and hope that they believe in your vision and can see the potential for it to grow in the future. So I found one that did exactly that. It was a family-run bakery up in Yorkshire. And they were willing to turn, take a risk on me and start manufacturing our cookies for us. Thank you for sharing that. I'm really interested to hear that there is a website where you, you know, you can go and find them all. That's a massive, it's a really good starting point. I, I didn't, I made the assumption that something like that wouldn't exist. So I guess that's a great place to start. Um, but thank you for sharing the process. It, it sounds to me like um, 
there's just so much hard work involved because you're constantly having to prove yourself and sell yourself and your product every single step. And I, that was something I also, I didn't anticipate because with lots of, for, for lots of different types of products, it really comes down to whether, you know, you can meet their minimum order quantities and often they're fairly low and they can be a bit flexible, but it sounds like actually because you're sort of all, again, fighting for a space on the production line, um, it's much harder. It sounds like with food products. Yeah, exactly. Um, you really, it's kind of chicken and egg. You need to go to them and say, I've got a manufacturer lined up. And so luckily it kind of coincided with having a cardo say yes, three years ago. That, that was the time I was looking for a manufacturer. So when I was pitching to them, I said, look, we've already got a cardo. <laughs> a cardo will be taking this product. <laughs> and little did they know that that would be three years later. But um, so, yeah, you've kind of got to go in with some kind of hook that you have something lined up rather than, oh, I've got this idea. I don't know where we're going to sell it. I don't know how much we're going to sell. I don't know how we're going to fund this. You've really got to go to a manufacturer and say that, this is our, you know, do a proper business pitch deck to them, your business plan, how you're funding the business, where you're going to be selling it, what does the future look like, so that they can take kind of calculated risk on you. I guess a lot of things have to align in that case, don't they? Because Ocado obviously wants to know that you can fulfil orders and the manufacturer wants to know that you're going to sell them somewhere. <laughs> so, yeah, there's, that's a lot. There's a lot going on. Yeah, exactly. So you're kind of, yeah, you've, you've got to play it really carefully. Um, but yeah, it worked out and let's talk a little bit if that's okay Marika about how your business and team has grown in the past year because I know you've made a few hires recently and I think that would be really interesting to touch on if you don't mind Mm. so I've just been doing it on my own for so long with a little bit of help Um, I had someone helping me um, one day a week with kind of the Amazon back end system which was a nightmare and a bit of marketing had helped. And then I, I um, had someone helping me a bit with social media, creating some content, but very bitty here and there, you know, consultants. And I really didn't know how to start growing my team and who I was going to need first. And I think when you're running your own business and you're an entrepreneur, you do really feel like a jack of all trades. And it's quite hard to give up part of your... Oh, hello. Well, I'm still here. Oh, sorry. That's all right. <laughs> um, so I'll go back. I'll just go back a bit so you can edit that. Um, yeah, I really didn't know where to start with building the team and who to get in first. Um, you do really feel like a jack of all trades and you, it's quite hard to give up part of your role and delegate that responsibility. So, um, and also it's down to money, you know, hiring people suddenly does require you know money in the business to be able to afford that um, so we did I did a my first kind of big investment raise at the beginning of this year and the plan for that was to take that money in so I could start building a team because um, I realized I do need some expertise in to help me if we want to be able to grow so I just hired Gemma as a marketing manager um, part-time uh, hopefully to grow into a full-time role and I've also hired um, two people who are helping me with sales. Um, 
so yeah that's the start and I'm also looking for someone at the moment to help with operations so I can feel that this team is slowly starting to grow which is an amazing feeling to realize that you start having more than just you that cares about it and wants it to succeed um, and get that support it's brilliant yeah that's amazing thank you for sharing that because um I was really interested in sort of when you know it's time to sort of take people on and, and how to go about it so that's so what was was marketing and sales areas you identified as the first two where you could really do with some help yeah and the, I think the problem was for me that I love marketing and my background is doing marketing but it, I'm spending so much time of my doing marketing that I realized that I as the founder need to be focused much more on the commercial and the strategy and the growing of business and if you're spending you know days writing blogs or newsletters or creating gorgeous pieces of you know reels (laughs) you're not that's all the lovely stuff I love doing it but it was holding the business back from being able to grow so that was kind of quite a tough decision to make because I could hire someone to do the kind of commercial side and help me grow it but especially when you're pitching and selling to supermarkets they want to talk to you the founder they don't want to talk to someone else. They want to hear it from me. So I do need to, I realise that I need to focus my time on the commercial side of things. So that's why I I decided my first hire was going to be marketing. Yeah, that, I think that makes sense. And I, I can also see as well, especially if something's in your area of expertise and you enjoy it, it must be so hard to let that thing go. Yeah, really hard. But um, yeah, I'm slowly, I'm slowly letting go. And yeah, sometimes you've just got to make the right decision for the business rather than the right decision for you personally. You know, I would love to be full time doing marketing, <laughs> um, but I know that's not right for the business. Um, so, yeah, that, that, and that took a long time to make that decision. It's taken at least six months to come to that realisation. I kept kind of flitting between, you know, who should I hire? What should I be doing? Um, so, yeah, I finally made the decision and went for it. Thank you. And do you have any advice um, on hiring for your small business? Because I mentioned when we spoke before that I know a lot of my guests um, have freelancers or consultants they work with, but actually making a hire and finding someone to support you in growing your business is is, is a bit different. Um, do you have any advice for people who might be thinking about making that first hire at some point soon? Well, my advice is always to try and get them first on a freelance or consultancy contract so you can try it out I mean I feel that an interview process you never really learn much about each other and how much you well you work together and what are their key strengths and skills and you really need to at least three to six months of working together before you would give them a kind of PAYE contract so I I've always in all my businesses I've always tried and get people in consultancy and, and use that as an opportunity for them to, to un- see if they like me and want to work with me and vice versa and give you that time um, because it's so I think it's quite hard to get out of a you know, an employment contract once you're in it you know if they you realize that it's not the right relationship um, so I've always recommended doing that first um, and that's always worked really well for me thank you I think that's really that's really useful 
And you mentioned um, when we were talking about hiring that you you went for a round of investment before you invested in the team. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? Because we had um, Gemma Waits on the podcast recently talking about raising investment um, and how to do it. But it'd be really useful if you don't mind just sharing a little bit about what it's like being the person actually doing it. So what I never realised before going into this industry (laughs) was how much money it kind of eats up and it burns through a lot of money Um, because it it, again it's chicken and egg you don't start being able to get the lowest price for your product in terms of buying it from a manufacturer until you've got massive volumes so at the beginning when you're just starting out you're paying probably the same amount as what you're selling it for so it's a very or, or even you're paying more for it than you can sell it for so it's a very it's a very cash eating industry especially at the beginning so we needed some investment to kind of get us through pay for branding pay for um, investment manufacturing pay for packaging runs um, and and now start paying for a team so I did I, I realized during COVID that I needed to raise some money um, and because it was COVID I kind of put, put, put that on hold until we kind of got to a better place and I was really lucky I re- I knew um, some people who knew the guys at Warburton's Warburton's is you know, the, the fifth largest UK um, food brand it's the largest UK bakery and they were looking to make investments into some small bakery startups um, so I pitched for that last summer and that was about, took about six months and then I got the yes from them and they made their investment in January of this year. So I sold them an equity stake in the business and um, yeah, and I get their support, which is, you know, so it's more than just money. So they've given a chunk of money, but they're also giving their advice and support, which is just invaluable because they know way more about bakery and, and creating amazing baked product brands than, than I could ever do on my own. So yeah, I was I was really fortunate that it was kind of the right place at the right time. They were looking to make an investment. I needed investment. Um, so yeah, that's how we, we got the money. That's amazing. And that sounds like such a great fit as well. Because I do remember when Gemma was talking about investment, one of the things she touched on is to think about whether you are looking for money or whether you also want someone who can provide expertise, advice, guidance, contacts. And um, it's wonderful that you've got both. And that seems like, yeah, it seems like a really good fit for you as well. Yeah, I did. I did speak to some VCs to invest the money, but, you know, they didn't have that expertise of running a food business day to day let alone a bakery business so with Warburton's it was just absolutely the perfect partnership yeah I can see that's such a good fit so talking about running a bakery business I'd love to talk about are there any and I mean we've touched on some of them but bakery or food products in general are there any particular challenges or things to think about if you're selling food products so I don't know, is there legislation to be aware of or just anything industry specific that you think might be useful for people? Food is a tricky one because you've obviously got quite a lot of health and safety surrounding the sale of a food product. Um, so for me, my product is manufactured by another, baker, another bakery. 
that um, has all that health and safety legislation, they are accredited, they are visited and they have, they kind of tick that box for me. So that's great. But, you know, it is an expensive route to go down. And for a lot of people starting a food business, they might want to, you know, create it themselves, which would be obviously a lot cheaper, whether it's in their own kitchen at home or whether they hire a kitchen. And there's some great places, especially around London, where you can go in and you can buy a kind of a commercial kitchen for the day <clears throat> and create your products. But for that, you need to make sure that you are registered with your local authority. Uh, they will want to come and do an inspection of your kitchen to make sure it kind of meets health and safety standards. But I know loads of people who are, who've got amazing, brilliant, successful, profitable businesses, and they are making the products themselves. They are selling them uh, either in like places like Whole Foods or markets or small independent shops and cafes. So there is, I think, with the food industry, there's a massive spectrum of, of size and how you can go about doing it. But yeah, the number one thing is making sure you put all your health and safety legislation ticked. Um, and there's loads and loads of places where you can look at for support. Um, there's a place called Young Foodies, which has got its own website, and there's loads of support from them. There's a Facebook group called The Food Hub, and all these places, everyone in the industry is so willing to help and share advice. So yeah, just reach out and, and ask people for help, and they'll guide you in the right way of what you need to do. That's really good to know. Thank you. Because I can see that it could definitely be a barrier for people thinking, oh, well, you know, people are going to be consuming this, so presumably there's lots to think about so thank you it's good to know that there's lots of information out there because i think that can be quite scary yeah definitely it is scary but it's it's just not impossible anyone can do it and yeah there's, there's loads of different routes in to the food industry it doesn't need to be a route which is i want to sell in a big supermarket and there's loads of other ways to do it and have a successful profitable business um, there's people who, who have food brands which only sell in uh, food service, so like cafes and um, hotels and leisure centres, etc. And they do really well. And the, the, the thing with the big supermarkets is it's a very expensive place to sell in because you have to do a lot of marketing investment to get that product to sell. Whilst there are many other routes of places you can sell your product which aren't so costly. So it's... it's interesting and important to think at the beginning about what is your vision for your, if you're doing a food brand is it necessarily that you have to be in the supermarket for us it was because it's a kids product it's a lunchbox product and we know from our research that that's where parents are shopping for those products in supermarkets they're not going to markets on a saturday to buy that product they're not even really going on amazon to buy that product you know they're going and doing the weekly shop and adding snacks to their shop Depending on what you you want to do, there's loads of other places where you can sell at which aren't so expensive to sell to. That's really useful, thank you. And I think you're right, it does make sense knowing where your customer is and where they're going to be shopping. Because um, I have spoken to a few other food brands who sell on their website or who sell, like you say, in, in smaller markets and, you know, do, do really well with that. So I guess it does depend on what your product is and who you're targeting. Direct to consumer for your own website is 100% the best way to go. You know, in terms of getting your best margin, it's brilliant. Um, and 
yeah, you just got to know if your customer is, is that type of customer where they are going to buy in bulk and, and search on the internet and buy for your website or not. So yeah, you, that's why it's so important to do that research at the beginning about your customer and their needs and their shopping habits. Amazing. Thank you. I've just got one more question for you, Marika, and I know that you've shared so much of us already, so this might be hard, but what would your number one tip be for other product creators? And I don't even mind if you want to reiterate something you've said earlier, but what would your, what would you want to leave people with? I think my number one tip would be before you start, really reach out to other people with similar products and really invite them for a coffee or a phone call and really, you know, <laughs> drill them for sorry, grill them, <laughs> for everything that they know. What are the highs? What are the lows? How much money have they really had to invest or raise to make their products successful? And just get as much info as you, as you can at that beginning stage before you start investing your time and money into doing anything. Because you will just learn so much from, from doing that network and getting that advice from other people. Um, so that's just so important before you start. Just talk to people who have, who have done it successfully, but also maybe not successfully. And really find out what were the lessons learned so you can take those lessons into your own business. Oh, I think that's brilliant advice. Thank you so much. And thank you for everything that you've shared. So we're going to, I'm going to link to your website and your social media accounts in the show notes so people can come over and find you. And I hope they also go and look for your products on their, on the shelves of their local, well, Sainsbury's later this year. Avocado. Avocado. Amazon. And we do also sell on our website. And yeah, we're in lots of cafes all around the country. So if you see us, please do let me know. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end of this episode. If you enjoyed it, please do leave me a review. That really helps other people to find this podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and do tell your friends about it too if you think that they also might enjoy it. You can find me at vickyweinberg.com. There you'll find link to all of my social channels. You'll find lots more information, all of the past podcast episodes and lots of free resources too. So again, that's vickyweinberg.com. Take care, have a good week and see you next time. If you've been inspired to start a podcast in 2024, I really recommend my podcast host, Captivate. Captivate were my top pick when I started podcasting four years ago because of how easy it was for a complete novice like me to get started. I've stuck with them for the last four years because Captivate is still really simple to use. They keep adding great new features like the ability to share ads like these and they've just been really reliable. So when you're ready to start your own podcast, you can use the link in the show notes and get a free seven-day trial with Captivate.